what up, Internet? This is John. You've met me before. I'm getting straight to the shit because Matt Richmond's not even here today. Uh, normally, this is the part where Matt would say, Dan, you can put something right here. Uh, I have the expressed privilege to invite to the podcast today, Charlie Gruet, my friend, my mentor, my brother. I am so excited to talk to you. Oh, yeah. It's good to see you. I mean, yeah, I know I, I, it's uh, virtual and all that, but um, it's good to see you. The, your camera is like two feet above your eye line, so you look great. It's a very hero shot. <laughs> For those of you who don't have the express privilege to see right now, I look great. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, let's keep this to eight minutes. What oh. I want to focus in on. Really? I'm just kidding. No. Okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, um, one question. <laughs> Yeah. And we go. Charlie, I have, I have known you for probably 12 years. For the internet who's listening, uh, all n- unknown number of you, I would describe Charlie as my first mentor, my first um, friend in the industry who really helped me as a cinematographer start to learn and grow and adapt. And over time, I've had the privilege of working with you and alongside you and for you and, and even having had the privilege of you shooting for me. And throughout all of these years... I've gotten to to watch and learn and see you and your family grow and you and your career develop. And I'm always speechless because oh, you're always thanks, doing man. something fantastic. How would you describe yourself, though? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm a person who, uh, you know, has worked in the, on set for 30 years. Um, that's all I've ever done is production. You know, I've never really worked in any other capacity. So, you know, and that was, you know, kind of starting as a BA and then working in photo assisting and photography and and working on set that way. Uh, and then started shooting uh, as a DP probably 20 years ago, um, trying to make that leap from assistant to cinematographer. Yeah, you know, I got such a such a hard question to answer, but... I was never like a young student or, or, or a kid that was like, I want to be a DP. I want to be a cinematographer growing up. Um, it was like, I like films and I like movies and TV and, and I want to do that, you know? And I went to film school and I got uh, a degree in television radio. And I kind of initially thought when I went to college, I went to Ithaca College, I thought I wanted to do like when I was a freshman there, which was a long time ago, which I I thought I wanted to do like sports packages or or like you know like work for ESPN and like I do like little you know two minute roll ins or whatever you know I you know I just that was that was what I thought or like daytime magazine shows you know because <laughs> I didn't but I, I didn't know that like. I, you know, I didn't know that you could get an education in making movies. And it wasn't until like I got to college and then I was like, oh, you, you can make movies. You can, you, know, you can use this information and this education to like make movies or make TV or make narrative or documentary or something more than just like newsy TV or something. So, um, so I left, well, I, I finished college. I went to LA and I interned and then I kind of worked in commercials and kind of got a look into the world. It was like filmmaking on a very, um, you know, short scale, you know, it was like, you work for three days, you know, 
And I, I was like, oh, this is cool. So I kind of got into that, but I, and I was able to kind of meet a lot of great people, work with a lot of great people. I was blown away that like, um, some of, some of my like college age heroes, like Errol Morris, documentary filmmaker, I like studied like the thin blue line for like a semester, you know, and, and then I, I get to LA and when I remember one of my first jobs as an intern, they were like, take these tapes to the, to the set. And this is back when people used tapes. They used three quarter inch umatic tapes for like casting. And it was like a Ford commercial and Errol Morris was directing. And I was like, what? You know, I was like, wow. So, you know, I just, it kind of opened my eyes. I was like, oh, wow, we all can kind of uh, do this stuff. Um, and now my, my immediate thought is Errol Morris doing a Ford commercial. I have to find this. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was a Chevy commercial. It was a car commercial. It was a car commercial. And I couldn't, and I was like, it, it, my like arrogant, you know, fresh out of college mind was like, what? Come this film director is doing a commercial and like, what is, you know, this is crazy. So basically, it, distill all that down. Basically, I worked in, in, on those sets uh, in the capacity of a PA. Then I, I did like, um, I actually I did some gripping. This was like before the unions kind of became involved with commercials. So they were, a lot of them were non-union, but they were using union people, they were just in between like TV or film projects. They were working on commercials. I worked with, you know, I, great cinematographers like Russell Carpenter, Emmanuel Lubezki, uh, Boyan Bazelli. Um, those are three names that jump out at me right away. And I was able to like grip, you know, I worked with, there was a couple key grips that I knew I was able to like be like the grip PA. I was able to be the electric PA. I was able to do like art department. I was able, I even did some wardrobe for, for like a three month stint. Um, because I, I became friends with the stylist and I was like, let me try this. And she was like, okay. So it was pretty cool. You know, um, I, and then I did, uh, you know, then I was like, all right, I, I gotta, I gotta make some money. <laughs> you know, I, you know, commercial PAs, uh, back in the nineties. It was, I mean, who knows? Maybe it was a lot of money. I don't know. It wasn't a lot. I, um, but you could survive on a little money uh, back in LA then. Um, and I started doing locations. I started scouting. I started doing, um, uh, I don't know. It just seemed like there were some, because I had an affinity towards cameras and photographing and, 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 and that stuff. Because all the while, was the other thing was I was also photo assisting from the, my very first day out there. I was working for some photographers, so I was always involved in photography. And I just didn't know if that's what I wanted to do because I thought I wanted to direct when I got out there. And, and then I started seeing like that perhaps the, the greatest job of them all is the cinematographer because you have so much um, control over the product, there's so much control over the image, so much control over how things get made, um, you know, interdepartmentally, um, working with creatives, working with, you know, clients, working with directors, working with people, but yet you don't have 100% of the responsibility. And I, and I know that sounds a little bit like perhaps shitty, but I, I, in the way that it's like, it's kind of nice to 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 shoot something 
and be like, okay, great. Good luck with the edit, you know, and, and just, and just kind of move away. So I started to see that. And in fact, like, in fact, Boyan Bazelli, a DP told me that one day, he's like, this is a great, that's the great thing about this job. I can come in, I get to, um, I get to shoot these projects. I get to meet everybody, get to have a great time. And then when it's, when we're done shooting or we're done filming, I leave. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's cool. This was for commercials. And um, this was also, you know, this is the nineties. It was just like a very different time for commercials. This is when it was they, a different time. It was a different time. Cause they would be like, you know, at the end of every commercial by the late nineties, they were like, make sure you go to www.ford.com. You know, and it was like, it, it was like, people were like websites. Whoa. You know, so commercials were still like, um, it. You know, when it came for at came to, or at least this was my perspective. Uh, I'm no expert in the field, but I, 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 what I saw was that it was basically like they made commercials and they put them on TV, and that was it. And the and the budgets were were big, and you know, it would be no, it would be very common to be on like a eight day commercial shoot. You know, it sounds it's, like a dream. You know, <laughs> um, and um, so I remember. I don't know if this is like a nexus point in my timeline or something, but there was, it was probably a, a point where, you know, commercials were it and, you know, the internet wasn't what it is now. And I mean, it was still kind of just blossoming and, and everyone knew it was the big deal, but it just didn't have the technological foundation for us to like, you know, stream stuff on it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I remember being on a commercial. It was like a healthcare job or something. And I think Boyan Bazelli was DPing, uh, or at least that's what my memory um, says. And we, it was like two people sitting at like a cafe table and they were just talking, right? We, we did like two days of pre-light and it was like on this stage at the Hollywood Center Studios, which is called something else now, I don't know. But it was massive and they were, and it was like, you know, lighting the people was like a 20 by grid with like, another 20 by like um, silk with like a bunch of like 20 by like solid louvers in front of it. I mean, it was like this massive, massive lighting setup. And, and it was like a 300 mil lens and it was art. It was all shot interior, but it was made to look exterior, but it was, it was just huge and it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. But I just remember like sitting there and I was like, I like looking over the shoulders of people and looking at the monitor and I was like, Wow, I was like, like all this for like a two shot, you know, like, you know, and I was like, you know, when we, in my head, I was thinking, I was like, gosh, I work for these still photographers and we would do this same thing, but with like three soft boxes and like a couple strobes or something. And I, and I, and I, um, I just kind of was like, wow, it seems really like inflated. And there was this, kind of, you know, there was, and it, there still is this vibe, I, 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 but there's like, it was like grips do this, electrics do this, camera does this. Everybody who had their departmental jobs and they didn't really intermingle. Everyone got along, but it just seemed really big. You know what I mean? And I just kind of thought, I was like, I don't know if this, I don't know how to climb this mountain, you know? And so it was at that point that I was like, I'm going to focus on like 
just working with still photographers because I felt like at that time it would be like the still photographer, me, maybe another assistant, and then like a stylist, wardrobe, and then maybe make a pair. So maybe five people and you would do, you would do these little things and, and, or you'd find locations and you'd just shoot there. And, and I enjoyed that. I just, because it, it was kind of like, okay, light it, Charlie, you know, okay, here's, here's the camera with, here's the lens we're going to use. Here's the camera. Okay. Load the film in the still camera. You know, it was all medium format stuff. And, and then like art direct it. And then you're like, hang on, let me set dress this a little bit. So there was a, there was a really kind of cool, um, I don't know. I just really enjoyed that. I enjoyed it being like small. Everybody gets together and, and helps. And, and then that kind of led me to, and I'm going to answer your question in about 45 minutes after I'm done with this. Um, so, so that led to, I then started working with a lot of car photographers. That was, we shot on film still. It was like pre-digital. So you shoot like eight by 10 and you'd shoot chromes and you would shoot a bracket, send it to the lab, which was on site, like at the stage. And then like 90 minutes later, you'd look at the bracket on the light table and then you'd go and you'd make adjustments to the light. And, and you'd usually have like two or three sets working on stage at the same time. And it was so precise and so... I mean, you would shoot like a profile of the car and it, over two days, it would take you like two, maybe three days to fit, to shoot that because it was that, there was that much work, you know, and or there was that, that much to do for it. And then I worked for, you know, a couple car, a car photographer who did all like location stuff. So we just like went all over the, you know, Utah, um, California, Nevada and just shot all this stuff um, on location. We did Subaru for like three years. Every every literal shot from Subaru, the WRX, the STI when it came out. Ooh, the fun one. Yeah, the fun one. That was cool. We got to go to like uh, uh, Sonoma. We went to the racetrack in Sonoma and like, you know, shot there and stuff. Anyway, basically, this is now in the early 2000s and we... You know, I knew then that I was like, okay, I like photography. I want to do this. And the opportunities that came my way were documentary work because now there was also this like, um, there was like a technological um, innovations happening. Um, there was mini DV was becoming available and it was filming at 24p. I don't, I mean, you're probably, you were probably born around then, but it was like, you know, that was something that was a big deal. It was like, oh my gosh, you can shoot on video and it looks like, looks like film. That's what people would say, but it didn't. But it still looked unlike any other video had ever had looked. And there was a thing, and I don't know why it was, but there were, there were people, producers, who would contact me uh, or, you know, through friend of a friend, through, through my network or whatever. And they'd be like, do you know how to shoot HD? And I'd be like, uh, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I can shoot HD. They're like, okay, great. We need someone who could shoot HD. And, and I'm like, it, like as if it was some other, and it was, but it, as if it was some other like complete other entity. So that maybe like helped me, you know? And then I also think there was this access to a mini DV and, and, and other things that looked good and, and um, 
documentaries started to bloom, you know, like really like the beginning of the golden age of documentary because people didn't have to shoot on like beta cams and big, big nasty cameras and or film. And so I started getting some, some documentary work, which then led to me meeting you. Um, yes. And then also like, uh, you know, that, um, there was a, I think there was like a, there was a SAG strike somewhere in the early 2000s or something. I can't remember. I know there was a writer's strike in 2008, but there might've been a SAG strike somewhere around 2005. I can't remember. But what ended up happening then was that you had like, an, you also had this, like you had this thing where you had ad agencies who were like, well, let's film this commercial with real people. We don't need, we, we can't use SAG. So let's use real people. And then documentaries were using real people. And I was starting to get into the documentary stuff. And so then I got access to some um, commercial work through that. Um, cut to fade to black, come up from back. black, music, music swells, and I'm podcasting with you. And that's actually, that's what you do now. You specifically podcast. Yeah, I want to. I mean, I everyone go back. else does, right? <laughs> this is true. We all podcast now. We in our silos. I going back to that set. Uh, that's the first time I've heard that story of you kind of peeking over the shoulders and seeing all of this beautiful setup to shoot, you know, a two shot, and comparing that to what happens with still photography. To me, is like is a is a fulcrum point at which I'm like, oh, this defines so much of how you as Charlie approaches everything. Yeah. Because you learned early on how to kind of navigate through doing a lot with a little or having more, you know, hands on multiple roles. Yeah. So you today are a director. You still DP. You are a yes. father. You are a person. These are the things. You are my friend. Um, but what I'm intrigued by is you've described what I think, and we talked about this, the journeyman apprentice, like the the going through and learning things is something that so many kids don't do now. It's kind of they jump out and there's so many options and accessible filmmaking is so accessible that you can you can trip out of high school and yeah you're everything. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, I think the question you probably get a lot from people is well, how, how do you get work? How do you how do you do this? And I mean, you you put in know. time. You put in time. Yeah, I I did. And and uh I did put in time and I did put and I do have vast experience and I think it allows me to kind of navigate the world in that regard um but you know there's probably you know everybody is at the time that they're at when they're there you know it it is what it is I guess but I I feel like when when I started in the business there was a a time where you could survive in Los Angeles on you know $40,000 $40,000 a year, you know, <laughs> and, and, and work and like, and live and live in the city and go out. And, and I mean, I know, and now I just sound like an old dude, but it's like, it doesn't seem that way now. Like, it seems like all the places are expensive to live. There are like, you know, there, there, there are places in New York, like, I don't know how people come out of college and like live in New York or live in LA and like work in, in the business. I mean, like when I came out of college, you were able to like live in Venice beach and 
have a four hundred dollar a month rent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think, like like that 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 doesn't um, happen anymore. So maybe maybe for me, it worked out in that I was able to experiment with all different um, avenues and you know, maybe take my time gaining experience doing some grip work, gaining some experience doing electric, gaining some experience with stills and, you know, or uh, locations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it seems like now you might need to be a little bit more focused right off the, out the gate, you know, to be like, I got to go for this. Um, But, you know, Shit, man! I again, like, I'm just rambling. I've had too much coffee, and now I, I, I'm just like pontificating about this is the problem with the world. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there's value, though. Like, there's value in talking about experience. I think that the people who listen to these kinds of things, um, which admittedly isn't me, I'm not which really, is who? Who's listening I, to this right now? N- probably my mom. <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, Coran's right. listening. Just because I was like, yeah, Charlie's amazing. But the, the people, like, I, I think there's an opportunity right now. We're kind of post, like, we're post that time where everyone wanted to find the 21-year-old savant filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. And now it's like kind of shifting back into industry focus. And I think the result, like, you know, instead of the one person living in Venice Beach on a $400 a month rent, it's like six different people living in one house. And like the nature of the the young filmmaker is like you kind of live in a commune now and everyone's yes. lives are so different and weird and they're making content right like that's a big change too yeah content. yeah yeah it's like what does that mean content <laughs> yeah no i i mean i think it is it is it's very accessible to all people and now because of that i think it's also like it can be monetized and you know um corporations are, and I say corporations because I'm not eloquent enough to know, but like there's people who are like able to say, oh, well, let's use this um, platform to get the word out. And, and, and it's been like a very disruptive in a good way and in a bad way. I mean, it's been a, just a disruptive kind of nature of, of getting, you know, making visuals, whether it's for branding or commercial or for artistic uh, purposes. I mean, I, it's, it's amazing what you can do. And, and just like you open your phone and you could, you could spend a 90 minutes looking at stuff. And, and by the end of those 90 minutes, you're like, what did I just do? You know, <laughs> you know, completely it, it, lapsed. Yeah. The speed of which stuff comes at us now is also really, um, really hard to digest sometimes. But I do think, you know, one thing that is, you know, talking about my past, I just remember like, if I wanted to, like when I was 21 and 22 and I was like, I want to film something for myself, you know, I had to like scrape up money for short ends. So I'd have to like bag producers on commercials and be like, can you give me this 200 feet of extra film instead of trying to sell it back? Yada, yada. And I would, and I would get that stuff. And then you'd have to like, you know, try and get a camera for free and, you know, and like crew. And, and it was, it was a, it was a thing. It was a, it was hard, um, to do. And now yeah, obviously people don't, don't have that excuse. You know, people can say, I mean, you, it, everybody can go film something. And I know that, um, 
you know, these, you know, product creators, you know, iPhone, Apple, Androids, they're all, you know, basically promoting that. Like, hey, be, be your most creative self. I mean, we are living in, a, in the most like visual time that we've ever lived in humankind. You know, we communicate with pictures and everybody's a photographer. And if, so it is a bit scary for some journeyman cinematographer like myself to, to, to know that right now at, for any job or for anything, there's, there's a, a thousand people who can do, who have like filmed something similar, <laughs> you know, I guess. There's truth to that. At the same time too, anytime a, a, like a brand agency or somebody comes along and says, yeah, let's shoot this on iPhone. That's great until you call for video village. Yeah. And they're like, well, how are we watching this? And that's where I think like the, you know, there's like the practice and the art of filmmaking, whether it be in commercial or in narrative storytelling or in scripted, you know, like there's still some truth to, you can kind of build a craft airplane all you want at your local airport. But sometimes you, you need a Cessna or a Learjet and you you want it to be dependable and not my uncle's kit airplane, which I don't have an uncle who has a kit airplane, but if I did, that's my comparison. Uh, I want to shift gears. In, oh, okay. In, in, in I was going to w- tell a great story. Well, th- this is great then. <laughs> no, 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 It's not. But I was going to give you, I was going to uh, uh, corroborate your uh, statement there with an experience I just had on the other two, Pray which so. is premiering on HBO Max May 4th. Um, so uh, set your DVRs. Set your TiVos. <laughs> I'm just getting it streaming. <laughs> so, so it's like, um, so the show, the other two, season three, May 4th, HBO Max. Anyway, in that show, there are the characters often are FaceTiming with one another or rece- or doing something on the phone with video chatting and this and that. So we had to do a lot of um, direction and cinematography with the phone. And sometimes, you know, there was like, there's a, there's a sequence where like uh, one of the characters is like, doing a self-tape and he's doing it to his um, his laptop. We opted to kind of just shoot it with a camera lens, you know, with the camera around the laptop just so for the ease of Video Village because there was so much of it. But then for all the other stuff, we, ha- we, would, um, we would use Filmic Pro on, and we would bring in like a playback person who would then stream the... Um, the footage from the phone that's being actually used by the actor to some iPads so that you could monitor so that the directors or, or could be looking at the performance because technically also in the union, you can't like the actor, if the actor films something on the iPhone, like camera people can't play it back for the director to review performance. That is a union violation. You need someone there to do playback. Um, so, you know, what ends up happening is you get like producers who are like, oh, we don't need a playback person today. What would you do? They, you know, and then you get there and then like the director will be like, oh, well, how do I watch this? How do I watch this? And you're like, well, you know, there are days where this happened to me. I was like, I'm like, well, you have to kind of watch the actor um, over, you know, and just see their performance not through a screen. You have to watch the actor. And sometimes, that just like, you know, the director would be like, I can't do that, you know? And um, 
So that happened once and I went to production and I was like, never again, we're getting a playback person every time. Um, but it makes for, uh, you know, it, it's another challenge, you know, in getting, getting it done the right way so that everybody can complete their job um, as the best they can and in a timely manner because that's what it's all about, time. Everything's about times. They are great tools. Like uh, phones and all these different devices that allow us to do yeah. and create and capture. It's a prop that you can actively integrate into a production. And you actually walked directly into my segue, to my shifting of gears. Oh, great. Because I want to talk about what you're doing now. And now my, my amazing shift was going to be a WRX STI related shift. Great. Which was to acknowledge that the STI edition was my Kuntash. Oh, for me nice. as a kid, that was the that was my Kuntash. Yeah, That's what I had on the wall was the Impreza WRX. That's yeah, good. so thank you for making that card for me. Oh, yeah, man. I did. I I all I did was light light it nice so that you looked at the brochure and could be like, "Oh, sick, dude!" So I could say, "Someday I'm gonna dodge out of med school." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so today. You are still a cinematographer, still a DP, correct? But you direct, and yes. you know you jumped the gap, as as some people would call it, from from shooting to directing. Yeah. And the first question I have for you on that is, people always ask, "What's the difference? What's the difference in a DP, a director, a cinematographer, a camera operator?" Uh gosh. Okay. Uh, a the, a DP is the director of photography. And is responsible for the image. Um, it, it is responsible for the lighting, the mood, the camera movement, the lens selection, the, the, you know, responsible for the image or anything and everything to do with the image. So sometimes that bleeds into, uh, working with the production designer or an art director and making sure that, um, the set that they're building, it will work for the lights that you intend to use. Or even, you know, if you have the 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 ability to do this or the luxury of this is working with the production designer before the sets are even like built, but like, you know, when they're being designed to be like, oh, can you incorporate some lighting into the set? Like they do this a lot in like sci-fi and stuff like that, where there's where there's a lot of like LEDs built into the set walls and stuff. But um, if you're not doing sci-fi, you're just doing more, you know, practical stuff. You kind of working with the set de- set decorators and making sure that there's there will be practicals on the set. That's like my number one thing with art department is I'm always like, are there practicals in this set? You know, um, because that that's that motivates the light. You know, is the, oh yes, there will be a lamp here. Well, let's see what if we put the lamp on this side because I wanted to kind of you know, juxtapose the window and I'm going to have a color temp from the window here and a different color temp from the practical light. So, so the DP would, would be, you know, working with them as well. So working with the art department and then sometimes the DP works or in my experience, I've worked with makeup departments in consultation in that they will, they'll be like, you know, I, I want to make this person's cheeks pop more, you know, you, you just, you work with them, uh, to make sure that the people on camera are reading the way you want them to be read. Um, so there's that, you know, hair wardrobe, obviously like all the time with color, color choice, 
Um, you know, there, and you can, there, there've been many instances where there just isn't time to consult with each other. And all of a sudden you're like on like a, you're like on a very dark set and they like dress someone in like all black, you know, and you're like, oh shit. Okay. And it's like not shiny black. It's like matte black just or matte. something. You know, and, and, and you're like, huh? And you're like, do you have something else? Like, no. And you're like, okay, okay. Gotta make, gotta relight this or something. But so, so that, that's a, that's a DP. The, the director would basically consult with the DP to make sure that the image is going, uh, is, is toned in a way that the story is, wants to go. And I think that the director should be, is fully, much more concerned about the overall story and performance that's happening in that image. And the director is responsible for every department. And it's, well, not, not re- I mean, not responsible, but it essentially has to kind of, has to kind of work with every department and be like, I need the, you know, props. These props help tell the story. This wardrobe helps tell the story, you know, and it's all like, how, how does it interact with the story? How is it, um, how is it going to advance this scene to the next scene or how is it going to, how is it going to help this image sell this image or how is it going to, you know, in in that regard. And that's, that's the director. And I think, you know, um, in the scripted world in like, you know, television episodic stuff, you know, both the DP and the director are, are very important, obviously very important. I mean, everyone's important on set, but like, a lot of times the DP is someone who is like this through line through the whole season. They're like on every episode and sometimes, and in television, the directors pop in, like you have episodic directors. So a lot of times the directors don't, um, are not as involved in like the through line of the visual for the whole season. That's really up to the DP. Um, and the director will just be more performance and story stuff. But, um, what I was going to say was that, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Shit. Um, oh, well, this is one of those moments where you can edit all the ums out. And Ooh, this is where I come back in. And I'm like, you were getting into how the different departments and interactions happen. Yeah. And, and as a director and scripted versus commercial. Yeah. Where, you know, in, we both have worked for a lot of commercial directors and we have directed commercials. Yeah. And it's, it's a different kind of game than the scripted game. The yeah. two things have different goals because in a lot of ways, scripted and narrative television is about telling a story and supporting a brand, whereas commercial really is just about idea or product. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I, think, I think what I was trying to, trying to get to was that it seems, or at least my experience in the last few years has been like, there's just never enough time in episodic. And it's like, you know, I don't think that's my experience. My that's only my experience. I think that's just the way it is, and it, I get it. It makes sense. It's like you're a you're a com, you're a studio, and you're like I have this much money for sixty five shoot days, you know. And you're like, but we need seventy, you know. We just well, the way it lays out, we need seventy, and they're like, you got to make it work in sixty five. So then you, you know you, you, that's where a lot of like that's where a lot of my time is spent doing time management as a DP, as a director, you know, um, it, as in both capacities, because you you are thinking, you're like, okay, I've got X amount, I've got, you know, so much work to do in the day and I have so many hours. 
And so I have to break it down this way. And you, you have to kind of just stay on the time management side. And you know, and, and that, that, that isn't just a one person gig. I mean, you have people all around you that you're working with who are saying, fucking hurry up. No, yeah. no, I'm just kidding. I'm not saying that, but, but they, they, you know, you have people around you who, are, who are keep minding that as well. So uh, I think, you know, with scripted narrative stuff, there's a lot of, it's like a lot of chess pieces there because, or, or like a lot of chess moves. Cause you're like, okay, in this scene, this two pages, I've got two and a half hours to do it, but I need a shot from here, a shot from there, a shot from here, a shot from here in order to tell the story I want to tell. So you have to kind of, you know, you're like, okay, let's start with this one. Know that I have these five other things to get to, um, to complete the sequence. Um, and whereas, um, with commercial stuff or shorter form, because it, you know, it, it, it is, seems like, you know, it's not a 30 second world anymore. It could be like a one minute, two minute, you know, thing. You still have to, you can kind of like, you can kind of break some of those barriers a little bit. Cause you're like, you know, I don't, I don't need a shot of this person walking, you know, to connect it. You know, I don't need this shoe leather of, of this person walking. I'd, I could just jump to there, you know, the, the, the character is now gone from the tent in the field and is now walking up the hill with the dog. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an assumption where we over, and I, I as, as a younger, as a younger now director, but who shot, am just now really hammering into the world of, I don't need that. You know, like, yeah. there's a need to over-explain. And there's a need to sometimes assume that our audiences are too stupid. Yeah. And you start to get more and more confident, at least in my own, my own observations, more confident about the decisions that will end up on screen because you have experience yeah. and you've seen examples of this play out where you're, you completely realize that, holy shit, these are just completely ancillary moments that otherwise yeah. took time away from a more important setup. Well, I would say you, you've had a lot of experience in shooting something and then posting it, correct? Yeah, that's the weird so, world so, for me. But you get to you get to see in the edit that you're like, oh shit, we didn't need that shot. We cut it out, you know? And so like I think editing is a huge advantage to 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 filmmaking. Uh, a huge a huge educational step that I think a lot of directors and DPs especially could and should be involved in more because like as a DP you're you're rarely involved in the editing because it just is just doesn't work out you might be involved in the color correction but um you're not involved in the editing so sometimes I know if, as a DP I will shoot something and then I'll see the edit and sometimes I'll be like oh man what about that shot we did you know and it's the like, I just didn't fit. And it's like, oh, okay. And and that paying attention to that is something that I think, you know, and I know all DPs probably try to, but I think it's something that is very helpful. Is or if, if a DP can get some access to some cuts on a project, you know, I think it could be very helpful. Um, I've had the, you know, I've been able to see a lot of edits of stuff I've worked on. I've been able to, you know, I've been involved in edits on stuff that I've directed or DP'd. And so 
it's very helpful because then you can truly see, you're like, yeah, I really don't need that shot, you know, and it tells the same story. And, you know, you translate that to a shoot day and you're like, oh, we j- there, there's 30 minutes, you know, that we got back on the shoot. Like, if you know that you don't need this shot, you're like, got those 20 minutes back. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, it's if you could be on the day filming something and someone's like, oh, we should get a shot of, you know, this person looking up at the sky, you know, and you're like, we don't need it. You know, I know we're not going to use it. Boom, there's 20 minutes. Back in the schedule. Yeah. Just to finesse to that. other things, you know, to go eat, like, to go to craft service and, and get some, get a sandwich. Which is an important part of a day. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously, there's a lot of attention happening right now to like, uh, I would say, improving labor conditions in the industry, both for commercial and for, for scripted and for films. And that's good. We should, we should, this should become an equitable and sustainable lifestyle for people. And the nature of every industry is that in the last three years, it's been crazy, 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 figure it out, find a way to do it better and improve people's lives and create good content. Um, which is really the segue for the reemergence of craft services post-COVID. Uh, I feel like COVID killed the craft services department on commercial because yeah. everyone's like, bag lunches, bag lunches, yeah. go to your car, yeah. bag lunch. Yeah. yeah, And now you're like, okay, COVID's still here, but protocols have changed and it would be nice to have craft services on set again. Just a, a person to make coffee. Yeah. I mean, I, in my experience, because I've, I've, I've been in the episodic TV world greatly for the last few years. Um, like for the, so in 2022, there was, in my, I worked on two TV shows. I did a show called Tell Me Lies. It's on Hulu. Um, and we shot down in Atlanta and we had, so I was there for like five months doing that and we had great craft service. And then I, in the fall, I just finished season three of the other two HBO Max premieres May 4th. May 4th. Um, and um, so it, we had craft service as well. Now, there's still some things where you're like, oh, we, you, this is lunch. Here are the three things you can order. And you get, you're like a number one, a number two, or number three. And it comes in like a little, you know, tin and you get like a salad. And it, it's annoying because I'm like, God, there's so much waste. There's a so much, literally physical waste of this. So it used to be like, you'd get a plate and, and, and forks and knives and you'd go and you'd eat off that and then you'd put it and they would wash and reuse. They don't do that anymore and that sucks. But I, in my experience, we've had pretty good craft service. Um, there's a lot more individually packaged things like at this craft service table, like lots of, um, you know, granola bars or, or things, you know, that are all individually packaged as opposed to just like open air stuff. But I think we also know now that you, you're not going to get COVID from like a donut sitting out. No, and you are more likely to get other things from people coughing on the prosciutto. Yes. So I mean, maybe yeah, I don't I mean, need... What I'm really trying to get to is I want plates of prosciutto. I mean, maybe. Pretty maybe. Prosciutto. This is a me thing. And maybe a little prosciutto and a melon. Prosciutto e melone. This is the new thing that we'll do on our sets. <laughs> I mean that would be good. You know, I, I, we, you and I worked together a, a few years back, and we went to um, the UK, and then we went to Marseille, France, and we shot an amazing, amazing Purina branded, couple branded pieces 
that to this day still are should be watched by all. And and if you're listening, uh, Purina, we're available. Let's um, do more to go back to Marseille. Um, but we had cheese. We had cheese for breakfast. We had cheese for lunch. There were cheeses everywhere, and it was it was pretty amazing. I, I was like, this is how it should be. There should be massive wedges of cheese available for people all day you long. Know, I did I did a session with Alex Quinnell from yeah, um, sure. and it was amazing. It was because his his approach. It, dude, I, this is like maybe the fifth episode on this podcast. I have talked about the catering in yeah. in in Cassis. Is where yeah. we were, and yeah. it's like it's the gold standard. It Nothing is. will ever be as good as that to me now. I know, I know. It's it's um, it's it's too bad. Do you follow like Bad Crafty on Instagram? I, I, no, do you know that okay. this is a new call out. This this is a must do. <laughs> it's like it's like uh, people take pictures of their craft service and and it was specifically bad. It's like. It'll be like a cardboard box with like four oranges in it. And it's like crew only on it or something, you know? Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think um, craft services, you know, and lunch and food are a vital uh, aspect of production. And it, it's, you know, it's weird. I remember when I first got into the business and I was, telling my parents, I was like, I'm like, we had salmon for lunch, you know? And my, like, my dad was like, well, how, how much did that cost? You know? And I was like, no, I'm like, you work and then they break you. And then you go to a catering truck and then they're like, you get like salmon and asparagus or something, you know, and you, you get, well, you get all these varieties of food. My parents were like, what? And you, and, and they just give it to you, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'm like that they <laughs> feed us. And so there's always like this, there's always this, uh, when I still mention work to them or whatever, that, you know, they're like, well, do they, are, they paying, are they paying for your lunch? Are they giving you lunch? And I'm like, yes, yes, they give us lunch. And, you know, I, it's just a given now that you get like decent catering. You are not decent, but you get catering, you get craft service. And if it's bad and if it starts to get bad, the crew mumbles and grumbles long enough, like especially on an episode, like on a show, like on Tell Me Lies, it was a hundred shoot days. And it's like, you know, the crew by like 60, day 60, they're like, oh, this again, oh, I'm not eating this. Oh, but, you know, they, they, you know, and and everyone was like ordering out or or getting like Uber Eats and or, or you know, DoorDash or to wherever we were. But the food was good. It's just that if you're eating, you know, the same, you know, food from the same people five days a week, it can get, no matter how hard they um, try, it can get old. So it is, it is it's something that people, crew members want. And, and, and if you feed them well and you take care of them, the crew members appreciate that. And the crew members will, um, it's to sound awful, but they'll work a little bit harder. You know, they, they'll, they'll, there's like, if you feed people bad, food or if you feed them poorly or offer them poor snacks, they just, they're like, fuck it. Fuck you. Fuck this. And so take note, people. So what you're saying is if you treat people like humans and share dignity and respect and diversity yeah. of experience with them, they do more. I, it's like, yes, exactly. We, we have centuries of knowledge that this is the case, but somehow yeah. I still feel like at the end of the day, and I, and I get it, I, I bid, right? I write bids. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I know when, when you're looking to cut 200 bucks, you're like, okay, I could pull 75 a day off the craft. Yeah. But end of the day, I have a philosophy. Anytime you're questioning cutting a PA from your job, you're cutting the wrong thing. Because the second you're saying, I could, I could lose a PA, what you think you're perceptibly doing is losing a small thing that can bring your budget down instead of really addressing your concept and looking at the bigger picture. Because all the time, when you look at the small things like craft or having a third or a fourth set of hands for your producer to solve the problem of the budget and pulling those things back, you create new problems. Instead of addressing, well, how many locations are we trying to do? Or do we actually need this piece of the, G- you know, I don't want to ever cut yeah. g but yeah. like, there's yeah. other things. And I think that the, the shift now goes from how big can we get to how, what's, how is the labor base divided? And how is, my dad would say, you know, fucking socialist. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, how do you start to build effective crews that are happy? And that's where I think like for us, we, we focus now is uh, no one shoots. It's just, everyone's just happy. But no yeah, one's yeah. working. Yeah. We all just eat cheese all day. We're just eating um, cheese. I mean, you know, it is hard. I mean, like, you know, because I think that um, ultimately, I don't know, in my experience or in my perspective, it seems like ideas are made and, and concepts are, are conceived and, and, and people say, yes, let's go do this. And then they say, and then they're like, but, and everyone's like, yes, let's go and do this. And then they're like, but you have X amount of dollars. And you're like, oh, well, I need X plus 12, you know, or so I need, you know, I need, I need X plus. Um, there's never really X minus and, and, um, you know, but then people are like, well, this is what we agreed to do. And I, and I, and I, and I, it's hard, you know, what do you, how do you, you know, it's hard to like, change a concept, you know, and say, well, well, let's change the concept or if, you know, if we're going to try and do that. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's a hard, it's such a hard world to navigate when, you know, balancing the money and the, the end result, you know, and it's like, I, I found in my experience on like episodic TV, you know, you'll have a script that's 33 pages and it's a half hour show and it's written and they're like, yep, great. Here's, you know, million for this script. And you're like, okay. And you're like, but we need 1.7, you know, or, or, or you have five days, you know, scheduled five days, but we need six. It just, because that the, because the concept requires it and there's no way around that except changing the concept. And then you have like high level people who are like, well, we're not changing the concept because the concept was agreed upon months before we got started. So I, you know, I, so I think what ends up happening is that people are like, well, what can I cut? You know, I don't know. The cheese. The cheese. (laughs) So cut cut the cheese. Oh my God. That's such a great play on words now. Yeah, I know. That's That's what you have to do. Don't cut Cut the the cheese. cheese. Uh, Somebody, somebody make a t-shirt. There's gotta be somebody listening. Mom? (laughs) There's, um, I'm going to make a shout out to another podcast. No, please do. Um, and maybe you can tag them or something. And I can hashtag we'll... everybody. Okay. <laughs> On Comedy Bang Bang, which is a great improv comedy uh, podcast, which has been around forever. They, so they'll say something funny and then they'll be like, somebody make a t-shirt. Because I'm, I'm assuming that somebody will make, that makes the t-shirt based on that. So anyway, that's what I'm saying there. Comedy Bang Bang, check it out. It's on uh, cbbworld.com. No, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> I like Scott Ackerman a lot. <laughs> I know. Yeah, Scott, yeah, if you'd great. like to do an episode with Hey Retriever, uh, yeah, it's open. The door's open. <laughs> um, our, our, you know, the goal with the podcast is yeah. nothing. We have no goal. Yeah, it's okay. just literally, it's just Hey Retriever because why? Why not? Yeah. Uh, but what I what I have have come back to is that I enjoy these hours because they're just a chance to get to talk to my friends. Yeah. Um, which you know, for those of us listening who have stuck through this episode and, and gained knowledge from Have Charlie. we made this entertaining enough? I, Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I feel um, like I uh, just rambled about myself. I want to hear about you, John. What's happening with you? You, wear, you have a mustache. You've got thank you. bleach, blonde hair. Thank you. And red glasses. Thank you. And you, you have a whiteboard behind you that has a, a series of math problems on it. Okay. This is this is what running a production company looks like. It's just math. And my leg. Do you know the story of that leg? I, I carried it through an airport. No. Wait, yeah. let me see. Oh, wait. Just, oh, yes. It's just a leg. Okay. You want to get a leg up on the competition. Yeah, baby. It's a really bad joke. Yeah. Uh, no, there's no point to this. I, I enjoy the conversation, the dialogue, and ultimately, it's an opportunity to plug people's things. So, uh, you've already mentioned May 4th, the other two, season three. On HBO Max, are we plugging stuff now? Is that Plug where some we stuff. are? Tell me what you what do you have coming out? Tell me about the shit you've got. Show us your shit. Well, okay, uh, let's see. Okay, yes, the other two, season three, um, May fourth. Um, I directed two episodes and I DP'd seven episodes. Wow, ah, uh, it shocked you. <laughs> um, that was copy. <laughs> that was there was that. Um, if you um, if you're into, I shot another show last year called Tell Me Lies. It's on Hulu. Along, uh, I rotated. I was uh, there were I DP'd and there was another DP, Luke Montpellier, who's incredible. We wrote, you know, rotated, which was a very cool thing. It was my first time rotating as a DP on episodic because usually it was like, okay, start, and then you just shoot the whole thing, and it gets um, it gets really hard, you know. Um, because you just hard to keep track of everything, but rotating, it was a really great, it was a great experience because you go and you'd film for 20 days, you know, you 20 shoot days, and then you'd be prepping with a different director for 15 work days. And I, I worked with, on Tell Me Lies, I worked with, um, three great directors. One of them was Robin Wright, the famed, uh, actress and incredible director. And so that was a great opportunity. So that's on Hulu. You can check that out. Um, is not safe for work, and it's for TV mature. Do not let your children watch it. For all the kids listening, you can't watch that. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, one of my favorites that you've worked on is High Maintenance. Yes. Is that still, yep. still available on HBO Max? It is. It's available. Yeah. Um, well, probably the greatest show I've ever worked on for me personally, because it just, I love the stories. I love the characters. I love the fact that it was like an anthology. Um, I liked the, you know, every episode was like connected to this universe of Brooklyn, but also was, could be its own episode no matter what. So they were like, it, it was a great, great opportunity for, for me as a cinematographer, because I, you know, uh, could explore kind of slightly different, um, techniques or, or vibes or tones. You know, so that that was cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a great one. And there was also that one show that you did a lot of work on. 
Uh, yes, what was it called? A little tiny show called Saturday Night Live. Yes. I worked on that um, for two sketch seasons. Sketch comedy show. Yeah, sketch comedy show, seasons 42 and 43. That was, that was great. I worked in the film unit. Um, I was, uh, there were three film units and I was one of them. Um, and it was, it was amazing. You know, you'd get the script Wednesday night and then Thursday morning you'd all meet at 30 Rock and you'd go out and scout. And then, fr- you know, um, Friday you would shoot and Saturday you would color and post and edit and then just put it on air. Um, so, and it was, and it was great. That, that was a, was an amazing experience because it was like, you never knew what you were going to do. You know, there were like, like the first se- the first season I did season 42, the other film, film units, there was one film unit, which was, um, directed by Oz Rodriguez and Blake McClure, who just joined ASC, just got invited into ASC. He DP'd that unit, but they were really good at like the big numbers. And so they would do like the kind of big stage numbers. And then there was another film unit that was, um, that was, that did a lot of like mockumentary work or whatever. And then there was our unit, which was called the beast unit. We did a lot of like smaller indie film stuff. It was, it was, it was great because, you know, one week you're doing a music video the next week you're doing like a, short film the next week you're spoofing like a commercial um or we had a lot you know there were there were sketches that were that were callbacks to like a character from a few seasons ago or something like that so it, it was really really great it's a lot of great content yeah and where would you direct people to go to find your work obviously they can find you on our site but yes what's, um what are your urls go to charliegruet.com um, that has uh, all my cinematography work. Um, then you could go to thegruman.com. That's T-H-E-G-R-U-M-A-N.com. That has um, directing work on it. Um, you could check that stuff out. There's some links to my photography website, which I never update, um, but there's some cool stuff there. We'll get the plugin on Squarespace that allows us to do URLs. Oh, how do you do that? I don't know. Actually, I do know. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll drop all these things in the thing. And it'll be a place to find you. It'll be a whole thing. People will watch your stuff. They will yeah, love it. That's uh, cool. This brings us to the conclusion of the episode, which is very special uh, to me. Okay. What I want for you to do, and Dane yeah. will do audio, is just describe the sound of a perfect moment in your life. The sound of a perfect moment. Um, okay. I, I think it's at the beach, but a populated beach. Uh, maybe it's on a back deck overlooking the beach, like uh, somewhere in Bethany Beach, Delaware, perhaps. And you're at a picnic table and you have um, just poured out two or three dozen uh, blue crab steamed with Old Bay seasoning all over it. And you're at a group of people and you're all just having conversation and your family is around and they're off in the distance. The kids are off playing in the sand there and you're cracking crabs, you're hammering them, you're cracking them, um, cleaning them, eating the meat and then um, digging in. There's a little cooler beside you. Everybody has a little cooler next to you and you dig into it and it's got like a cold, cheap, watery domestic beer because you, you need hydration, quote unquote. Um, 
but you don't want anything too heavy. You just want it to be cold and light. Um, sounds of waves crashing, kids laughing, you know, good times. And that's it. That's Charlie, everybody. <laughs>